You're listening to P.F.'s Tape Recorder. This is the biggest name in comedy, Kostaki Economopoulos. Hello there, I'm P.F., this is my tape recorder, and welcome to another special edition of the tape recorder as we explore the history of synth pop. This is episode number two. Uh, not sure how many episodes we're going to have. I have I've mapped it out a little bit, but um, we're kind of going decade by decade here. In episode one, of course, we covered uh, pretty much the beginnings uh, of electronic music, starting from like the 1920s-ish when electricity is first introduced into uh, musical instruments, up through 1970. And, of course, we left off with uh, Gershon Kinsley's 1969. Uh, well, soon to be a hit, not a hit with his version, Popcorn. We're going to revisit that uh, in a couple of songs. But um, we're going to start in 1971 for this episode. And it's uh, a movie soundtrack that kind of gets things going. Now, there's a documentary on uh, – you can see it if you're in Britain. You can see it on the BBC iPlayer. It's called uh, Synth Britannia. And if you're outside of Britain, uh, bits and pieces of it are on YouTube. It was on YouTube for a while, the whole thing. It's about an hour long. And then they made him take it down because of rights violations. If you have a VPN, I reckon, and you can just trick your computer into saying it's in England or uh, anywhere in Great Britain, then you can maybe watch it. It's a really good documentary. I only have a couple of uh, problems with it, um, and they're minor. But uh, it follows the history of synth pop in Britain, basically, uh, from the 1970s uh, on, well, mostly the 70s and the 80s, really, is kind of where it drops off in the 90s. But uh, I bring it up because uh, that documentary reckons that what I'm about to play you really is the gestation, uh, begins the gestation of synth pop in the UK with a lot of the young uh, musicians that will become the synth pop stars and artists of the latter part of the decade. So, uh, and this had an influence on me as well, actually. Again, it's uh, our friend, uh, Wendy, Walter Carlos, uh, from, uh, now just Wendy Carlos, we'll just stick with calling her Wendy, because uh, that's who she is now. We heard Switched on Bach in episode one, but in 1971, uh, she composes music for a film called A Clockwork Orange, uh, a film I like, I still like a lot, but for different reasons than I did when I was 16. Uh, I didn't really appreciate the horrific violence of the movie, and it's done for a, a reason, but uh, I'm really not keen on that part of the film anymore. I do like the dystopian look of it, and I also like the fact that, uh, and it's more so in the book that this is emphasized, how kind of the language, English language changes as the inter introduction of other words from other cultures come in, mostly Russian. Uh, what they don't foresee, actually, is the way we've kind of um, truncated words down to like, you know, LOL and things like that. I think in the future you're going to see that in language as opposed to the introduction of words from other languages, but I digress. Anyway, so I'll give you my story on A Clockwork Orange. Um, we had a stereo when I was a kid. Uh, I was probably 10 or so. And it had a, it was an eight-track tape, probably. Now, my friend Pat Francis jokes that the record player is the most inconvenient way to listen to music. The eight-track couldn't be less convenient. It is the, it, it is the, probably the most inconvenient form of music uh, playing ever conceived. And for those of you who don't remember, I know it's kind of a trope of the 70s. Oh, eight tracks, well, but for those not in the know, it was a big cartridgey looking thing uh, about, I don't know, the size of, uh, well, you've seen the pictures of them. And what it is, you would put it in the player, but the th it had four channels on it. And what would often happen is, if, especially if um, you did what we did and recorded our own eight tracks, because we had a stereo that could, could do that, which was sort of convenient. 
and could record stuff off the radio. And it was slightly better quality than cassette tapes that were just starting out then. But he would be listening to a song and it would be like, uh, I, I, wouldn't it be nice if we were – so it would change tracks in the middle of the song. And I think the st- ones you would buy that were made by record companies tended not to do that, but sometimes they would. It, it was just crazy and you couldn't you couldn't go back and listen. If you wanted to hear a track on an album, you just had to wait, man. It wasn't like a record player. You could go over, pick up the needle, drop it back down. An A-track, you were stuck. And later they had fast-forward buttons, but you had to fast-forward all the way around again. <laughs> it's crazy, crazily inconvenient. Anyway, we had a re- one that recorded uh, stuff so we could record stuff off the radio. It was my mom's actually, and she liked recording classical music off the classical station in Cleveland, WCLV. And so uh, we did that. And so we um, would record stuff off the – my brother and I would record stuff on our own uh, 8-track, blank 8-tracks as well. Anyway, so one day my mom has WCLV on and, uh, and well, uh, this comes on. And I'm going to play it at the point we arrive at it in because as soon as we heard it, I think we might have heard it once before. My brother runs and jams a tape in there into the eight blank 8-track and hits record. So we only get the second half of this piece of music and I will pick it up here. That's like the coolest thing I've ever heard. Ten-year-old me is like, wow, that's really, really cool. And uh, like I said, we only got the second half of it there. It says Beethoven's uh, Ninth Symphony, Fourth Movement, the second half. Uh, but I would listen to that all the time. But again, I had to wait through all this other stuff for it to come back around on the track to listen to it. Well, so the Synth Britannia documentary reckons that this is where uh, most young British synth pop stars of the 70s get their big influence. And not only the dystopian nature of A Clockwork Orange, the electronic music. I don't completely agree with the dystopian aspect of it. I do agree with the synthesizer aspect of it because it sounds really cool and futuristic. Uh, this is the, the title theme I'm going to play you. This is kind of darker, and it's an original composition by Wendy Carlos. Well, here's the title theme to A Clockwork Orange. Thank you. 
So of course that's very dark and dystopian sounding, right? So I can see where they where they get that from. But really, and as we'll we'll discuss this further in the episode and maybe in, in episode three when we're really getting to the meat of the seventies and eighties synth pop, is that yeah, there's a lot of dystopianness to it. There's a lot of emotion, but there's also a lot of uh, hope in the future. And the future is seen as this you know, bright, innovative place. And I think that's kind of what I took from A Clockwork Orange, the music uh, composed by Wendy Carlos, and not the dystopian part of it. Uh, kind of realized in the title theme. So anyway, uh, so that's the big influence for a lot of uh, people getting into synth pop for sure. Switched on Bach and then of course A Clockwork Orange. And then she releases the Well-Tempered Synthesizer in 1972 and that just continues to uh, pique people's interest in electronics. And again, again at this time, uh, you know, big rock bands with a lot of money can afford the synthesizers to, to make music like this, but for most musicians, it's out of reach. It's way easier to buy a used guitar, used drums, used bass, a microphone, way, way, way cheaper than buying a synthesizer. But um, but Wendy Carlos, you know, soldiers on. And the synthesizer is weird. It's because, it, and I'm, the song about the play is going to demonstrate this, the synthesizer for Wendy Carlos is being used to make serious classical music that even classical music people are like, oh, this is really cool. This is this is just a different way to realize something, a very modern way to realize something that's very great and very classical. Whereas in the pop and rock scenes, with the pop, like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, it's being used to make serious progressive rock. But uh, this song comes out in 1972. It's a uh, remade version of Popcorn from 1969, which was originally released by Gershon Kinsley. As I explained in the last episode, he remade it again, and then one of the dudes he remade it with made it again under the name Hot Butter with some other guys. And, well, uh, they give us this. So it's a much better version of Popcorn, I believe, than the 1969 version. It's more uh, – there, there's more separate pieces to it. There's a bigger variety of sounds. Uh, so it, the, 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 the little synth melody in the middle of it that's a lot brighter than the one from Gershon Kinsley, even though it's essentially using the same instruments and same technologies only three years later. But it is a much better version, and this version becomes a worldwide smash. But again, we arrive at the problem that it's just still being seen as a novelty. I, indeed – Another group uh, released this album in 1969. It doesn't gain a lot of exposure until 1971, uh, 72 in there when it's used as the theme for a uh, comedy show from Canada called The Hilarious House of Frankenstein. Uh, this is a group called The Happy Mood. This is a song is called March of the Martians, and it winds up being the theme song for The Hilarious House of Frankenstein.
But just like with popcorn, it's again a novelty. It's not really, you know, it's it, it, it's a pop song, sure, but it's not really you know, take, taken seriously. But then in 1974, uh, a couple of fellows from Germany who had kind of been mucking about since 1969 doing sort of more experimental stuff with electronics and creating something called Krautrock, uh, form a, a band called Kraftwerk. And Kraftwerk are a more serious band. They're interested in making actual songs. And, uh, well, they roll out this in, <laughs> roll out, so to speak, uh, this beauty in 1974. That is Autobahn, one of the synth pop classics, right up there with the Clockwork Orange theme and uh, the realization of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, Fourth Movement. Uh, it is a it becomes a hit in America. I didn't realize that. I got the 28 in this country. There's a single remix of it that you can't buy or stream, by the way. But there's a three, four minute version of it. The uh, album version is like 20 minutes long. The uh, single version gets a 28 in the United States, and people are starting to take this a little more seriously now. So not only can you know big rock bands do this, but uh, you know you can make music that's all electronic. So we get to, uh, and again, we're going to skip around a little bit here as we get into the mid-70s. I'm going to go through into the late 70s, but then we're going to skip back in episode three, and hopefully it'll make sense. So uh, now in pop music, uh, people are starting to get interested in using synthesizers, and uh, one of the, uh, of course, the big musical movements of the 70s is disco. One of the biggest stars of the disco era is Donna Summer, and her producer, Giorgio Moroder, uh, they're making an album for her, but he wants something that sounds uh, a little different than the disco that's being produced. It's featuring a lot of horns and, you know, real heavy basses and things like that. So uh, he and another fella concoct this. Children, don't forget this torture Just because you call her mother Doesn't mean I Feel Love by Donna Summer. That is a hugely, huge 
hugely influential track uh, in the history of synth pop. A lot of people hear that and are like, holy cow, this is this is the future of pop music. And it and Marauder's gonna, you know, be a big name in electronic music all the way up through even now. So uh, we have I Feel Love in 1977, then a fella uh, named Paul McCartney used to be in a group called the Beatles, young people, and then he was in a group called Wings. He releases a song, he's a little interested in the synthesizer thing, and releases a song called With a Little Luck. Now he's a big rock star, he could afford the big complicated, uh, you know, Moog keyboard modular system, but he actually uses, I think, more of a, uh, one of the uh, cheaper uh, models. And again, we're going to discuss those, we're going to skip back and discuss those in a bit. But um, here, With a Little Luck, it becomes a hit in the United States and uh, in Britain as well. And it's by a guy named Paul, you can trust Paul McCartney, so here we, here's the, the, uh, the beautiful keyboard middle from uh, With a Little Luck by Paul McCartney. little luck Paul McCartney uh, synthesizers becoming a little more commonplace in pop music. Now what's happened in the middle of the decade is uh, we have like I said synthesizers were very expensive but around 1971 they released something called the Mini Moog but the Mini Moog is, and it's the competing keyboards that come along uh, afterwards are still prohibitively expensive. Again cheaper to buy a guitar, a bass, a drum, but it's way more affordable than buying those big modular systems. So if you save up enough money, you can buy one of these keyboards. Indeed, a couple of fellas in Sheffield uh, split the cost of one. Uh, Martin Ware, and then the, he's from a, a group called Heaven 17, but he originally starts in a group called the Human League, you may have heard of, with a fellow named Ian Craig Marsh. Well, uh, they're both computer operators in Sheffield in the mid-70s, so they have decent jobs, um, but they still have to save their money. Martin Ware in the Synth Britannia document he says, hey, you know, I could have I had a choice between buying a secondhand car to help me get to work or uh, or you might turn my furnace startup or we uh, or we could, you know, I could use that money to buy uh, this Korg synthesizer. He happens to buy the Korg synthesizer, never learns to drive, still owns the Korg synthesizer to this day. So anyway, um, Human League find a singer named Phil Oakey. Uh, they write, he writes the lyrics for this song and they release it. The song uh, comes out in 1978. It's called Being Boiled. Children don't forget this torture Just because you call her mother Doesn't mean that she's your better Being boiled by the Human League, the song goes nowhere, but it's all electronic. It's uh, it, 
it's a very much a song of the times for people making electronic music. We're going to come back to being boiled on the human league in a little bit. Uh, but first, we're going to visit uh, Southern California. Weirdly, uh, a guy that becomes interested in electronic music is Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Now, Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys have released uh, 1976. They released an album called 15 Big Ones, uh, an album people hate. I'll be discussing that on a uh, the Cincinnati Library podcast called My favorite album is terrible uh it is my one of my favorite beach boys albums people hate it i love it uh 15 big ones that is and then after that they released this album called love you love you was supposed to be a brian wilson solo project but he uh, somehow the band got involved in it i guess to kind of put he was having still having some trouble then focusing i guess maybe so they kind of contribute uh they help flush out some of the songs uh, flesh out some of the songs not flush out although i think some some of them flushed out i'll explain in a second and they the album is almost entirely done on synthesizers one is called well they use the moog but they also use one called like an arp i think it's called it was a synth company in the united states that went out of business in 1981 but anyway i'm gonna play a song from beach boys love you and i it's the song i think that is most synth heavy and most you'll see what i mean here here's um i'll bet he's nice from the beach boys album love you from 1978 i bet he's nice i bet he's twice as nice as me and it makes me cry because i remember you and i please don't tell me if it's true because I'm still in love with you, pretty darling, you, my pretty darling, you, pretty darling, you, my pretty darling. I bet he's sweet, baby. I bet he's neat, baby. I bet he's funny, and that ain't all. I'll bet he shows you quite a bomb Please don't tell me if it's true Because I'm still in love so you can tell it's very moogie sounding. It's probably the most, you know, moog sounding song on the whole album. But the album is very, very heavily electronic. Very, very few traditional instruments. Maybe there's a little electric piano in there somewhere. But it's mostly synths, and that's what Brian wanted to work on. Many people call this the Beach Boy's second best album. Uh, I do not. I keep listening to it over and over again, and I'm a big synth pop guy. But I just... I just don't like this album. I mean, a few of the songs have grown on me since I really tried to listen to it hard. Uh, Peter Buck of R.E.M. does the liner notes for this. Yes, this is his favorite Beach Boys album, even above Pet Sounds. Brian Wilson himself says, if you're going to start listening to the Beach Boys, listen to Pet Sounds. Uh, possibly listen to Holland and listen to Love You. Those are the three he would choose. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> what this shows, though, is that synthesizers are being embraced by everyone now at this point, and uh, we, we head back over to England, where uh, a fellow named Daniel Miller, he works in a record shop, he starts his own little tiny record label, and he releases his own single under the name The Normal. The song is inspired by a uh, book, a series of books, I guess, by a guy named Gigi Ballard, as they say in uh, Synth Britannia, and it's, a, it's novels about... Uh, the future and cars and things like that, and it's it's kind of a, it's kind of a strange one. 
I started working radio in Pittsburgh in 1989, and we put this in our rotation because you know, we wanted to put some old new wave stuff in there in addition to the modern stuff we were playing from the late 80s. And boy, the young people just ate this up and wanted to hear it all the time to the point where we had to put it on moratorium. We'd only play it once a week. But uh, And it's just it's a song I don't like. But again, this is one of the landmark tunes of electronic music from Daniel Miller, who will later produce Depeche Mode. We'll get to that later, but this is Warm Leatherette from The Normal. Leatherette. So the success of The Normal inspires Daniel Miller to do another project. He calls it Silicon Teens, but it's all him. He produces this fictitious group, a la Gorillaz, if you will, uh, in the modern era. And it's he just hires these actors to play the group in the couple videos they make and it, it appearances. And uh, a guy that's an actual musician, Frank Tovey, who has his own career and is a buddy of Daniel Miller's, uh, appears as the lead singer, though he does not sing on the album. Uh, Daniel Miller is the one doing the singing. And he has, uh, it's not a hit, but he gets a lot of attention with, he does, the Silicon Teens do a, an album, or Daniel Miller does an album as Silicon Teens of all 50s and 60s songs, uh, two of which become hits. This is the first one released, does not become a hit, but it really gets the attention of a lot of people including John Peel of the famous BBC radio show. Uh, this is Memphis from Silicon Teens. Long distance information, give me Memphis, Tennessee. Help me find a party, trying to get in touch with me. She could not leave her number, but I know who placed the call. Cause my uncle took the message and he wrote it on the wall Help me information, get in touch with my Marie She's the only one who phoned me here in Memphis, Tennessee Her home is on the south side, high up on the ridge just a half a mile from the Mississippi Bridge. Memphis from Silicon Teens, a.k.a. Daniel Miller. That guy actually gets a lot of airplay, I mean, relatively speaking, in the United States. And like I said, there's two other songs. I can't remember what other covers were off of this that became hits in Britain. But uh, that is where we leave off with the 70s and 80s. What we're going to do when we get to episode three is we're going to kind of skip back 
and into the mid 70s to kind of start uh, picking up where all of the big name synth pop groups that you know, including Human League and Heaven 17, but also uh, Custom Maneuvers in the Dark, Depeche Mode, Yazoo, all of them, and even to kind of touch on what's happening in the United States where bands are uh, using keyboards and they're becoming more acceptable again, but uh, groups like The Cars, Blondie, who aren't really synth pop groups, but they use synths a lot, so we'll discuss that in uh, episode three. And uh, oh dear, we have to gotten to a song of the week at this point. So our song of the week uh, kind of fits in with this whole synth pop discussion we've been having for the past couple episodes. And we'll have, you know, technology has come a long way. And, you know, pop music now, it's a very, very commonplace to use technology, even with traditional instruments, you know, guitar, bass, drum, rock and roll, all that stuff. And uh, no, no such exception in K-pop circles. Uh, what they say is Korean pop. Funny story, uh, one of the Korean pop, uh, K-pop producers was complaining. He's the guy that produces uh, Blackpink. I can't remember his name. He was like, why do they sing a lot K-pop and call it K-pop? There's, there's no, like, uh, Ameripop. And, like, well, first of all, all pop is Ameripop, one. And, and two, we had something in the 90s called Britpop. So, yeah, peop, they do divide it up like that. And, uh, you know, K-pop is just pop that comes from Korea. And it's still pop, and it's awesome. And uh, I kind of like how they mix the Korean and English and sometimes the other languages into the songs. Uh, all of the discussion we were having about a Clockwork Orange. How about that? It comes back full circle. Anyway, Song of the Week is from a group called BTS. Yeah. They have that big worldwide number one hit, Dynamite. A couple other uh, big songs charting in the uh, U.S. and the U.K. as well. Had tons of hits in their native Korea. But uh, this song called Life Goes On. I think it came out last year or the kind of tail end of last year and is about in the pandemic and he's kind of pressing forward and, you know, we're going to get through all this together. A nice, mellow, hopeful tune, Life Goes On. Uh, join us, of course, next week wherever you get your pods for another uh, episode of PF's Tape Recorder. This will be episode three, The History of Synth Pop. Join us then in the Meantime, here is BTS with our song of the week, Life Goes On, PFT Recorder, so long and thanks for listening.